Hey there, Lescal Tones listeners. Before we start, I just wanted to let you know that this will be the last episode for the season. We will be on break for the summer and come back with new episodes uh, sometime around late August. In the meantime, I encourage you to revisit some of the older episodes and discover some of the amazing composers, performers, and artists that we've had on the last 75 75 episodes, oh my god. Also, uh, believe it or not, we have no idea who is listening to us or, or how many people are listening to us. iTunes really doesn't give us that information. So, if you're liking what you're hearing and want to let us know about it, uh, you could give us a rating on iTunes, or even better, you could write a review. Uh, thanks for listening, and enjoy this awesome episode with Matthew Evan Taylor. <laughs> You are listening to Adjective New Music's podcast, Lexical Tones. I'm your host, Rob McClure. Curious. Sensitive. Evocative. Award-winning composer and saxophonist Matthew Evan Taylor has been hailed as a promising new voice by the Miami Herald and a risk-taker by the Huffington Post, whose music is insistent and defiant, envelopingly hypnotic, says Alan Young of Lucid Culture. His music has been performed across the United States and Europe by such ensembles as the Cleveland Orchestra, the Detroit Symphony, the Metropolis Ensemble, the Amani Winds, the Manhattan Girls Chorus, and the Frost Symphony Orchestra. He has also collaborated with visual artists and dancers. Most recently, Matthew and visual artist Danielle Together collaborated on a series of graphic scores premiered at the Cary Seacrest Gallery in Chicago. He has also performed with Elliot Sharp, Marilyn Crispell, Tatsuya Nakatani, Taylor Ho Bynum, Mary Halverson, and dancer Catherine Kramer. His ensemble with pianist Asia Korapanova, the Firebird Duo, will present a program of all of Paul Creston's works for alto saxophone and piano at the 18th World Saxophone Congress in Zagreb, Croatia. Matthew is currently visiting assistant professor of music at Middlebury College in Vermont. So, uh, thank you so much for for doing this, and great to meet you like this. Yeah, yeah, it's great. Uh, thanks for inviting me. Yeah, no problem. Um, we're going to hear two, uh, well, three works uh, today, and there will be two relatively actually not relatively, really recent works, and then one older work. And I kind of want to start off with uh, the more recent pieces. So I want to start off with uh, your piece for chamber orchestra called Prayer Service for Ernestine. Um, What was the impetus for writing this work? Uh, So uh, Prayer Service for Ernestine is uh, written for my grandmother, uh, who passed away last year, Ernestine Taylor. Um, And uh, she was... uh, a fixture at uh, her church, which is uh, St. Paul uh, African Methodist Episcopal Church in uh, Birmingham, Alabama. Uh-huh. And at St. Paul, they um, still, from time to time, depending on the service, they would still practice an, an old um, tradition in the black church of uh, hymn lining, um, which is uh, one uh, one member of the congregation would start singing a line and then the entire congregation would, uh, answer, um, singing the, the consequent phrase of that, whatever it was. 
but there's no tuning pitch or anything. So there's just this kind of cacophony of, of, of voices uh, responding to this one person. Um, so it, it had some influence on what I actually uh, wrote in the piece. Yeah. I mean, what kinds of musical images are you trying to elicit in the audience as the piece unfolds? It seems like there you have a lot of different um, different things that the audience should kind of catch here and there. Well, it opens uh, with an arrangement. Actually, the piece opens and closes with an arrangement of uh, one of my grandmother's favorite hymns, which was called uh, Comfort Ye Disconsolate. Um, it's actually... It's actually a fairly upbeat tune, but uh, I I, I uh, turned it into a, a somewhat of a dirge at the beginning, uh-huh. kind of as a, a slow processional at a funeral service. Um, and then uh, just the proceedings of the service, I, I kind of just was remembering uh, various times that I attended church with my grandmother and then also um, what the actual funeral was like. Um, and so, um, kind of the major points are the processional in, and then there's, uh, the, uh, trombone calling area where Mm -hmm. it, there's the trombone call and then the response from the rest of the orchestra, um, in that, uh, trying to emulate that lining, um, sound that I remember from my childhood. Um, and then after that, uh, we have it, the energy start is building until we get to the sermon, which is the solo bass clarinet okay. uh, section. Um, and in that section, the bass clarinet is kind of uh, supposed to be a recitative kind of delivery. Um, and just remembering the syncopated kind of delivery of, of uh, black ministers, what they're kind of famous for as far mm-hmm. as the, um, amount of energy and kind of how catchy their sermons can be. Um, and then it builds and builds and builds until um, basically the roof of the church is blown off by yeah. ecstasy of the, of the, of the congregants and the minister. And then after that, uh, there's always uh, the um, kind of the, I'm going to forget. Uh, I've been, to my grandmother's church in a while, but uh, basically the procession out. Right. Yeah. Um, often after the sermon, there's like a passing around of the plate or something, but everything Mm -hmm. calms down in this really kind of abrupt way. Um, and so I, I was trying to reflect that and, and then give a full true kind of, uh, presentation of my grandmother's hymn. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, yeah, it was just meant to be kind of uh, a way to to musically usher her into a better state of life. Right, right, right. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and it, it really sounds like this is kind of a, you know, this, this piece has a kind of a programmatic intent, you know, mm-hmm. uh, follow follows a service in a in a really meaningful way. And it also follows your emotional response to to your grandmother passing. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, uh, actually when I wrote the piece, it was, uh, I wrote it basically the week after she had passed. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, whenever you're dealing with, uh, 
the loss of a loved one. And I was particularly close to my grandmother. Um, you know, you're aware of the ebbs and flows of emotion that you have. Some days are good. Some days are bad. Mm-hmm. Some hours are good. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's just, it, it can be, it can be really uh, impactful in a way that you don't expect. Um, like I'm a fairly stoic person. So, you know, I think I'm pretty in control of my emotions and mm-hmm. then something like this happens and you realize that, you know, no one's impervious. To right. It. Yeah. Um, so, uh, if you are, you're probably on a most wanted list somewhere. So, <laughs> <laughs> it's, so it's a good sign of humanity. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. It's, I mean, I've had this conversation with multiple p- composers, um, who, and myself being one of them who, you know, a loved one dies and they immediately, immediately go to music as, as a way to express it. And, uh, and I actually, uh, my, my grandmother just passed away last year as well. Mm-hmm. And, and I immediately, you know, went to, uh, went to the piano and started writing and it was, it seems like for a lot of composers, that's the way that that's a part of their grief. You know, mm-hmm. and on a way to to make it through, as opposed to just dealing with things without music. It's like, I, I mean, I well, I I think a lot of composers, you know, just uh, they see the world through you know music glasses. Yeah, and that and that's how they that's how they experience everything. Is that kind of the how it was for you? It uh, it was interesting because I I I lost some other people. Um, and I've, I've had grief, but music was never a a reasonable conduit for me. Mm. It it felt, um, I don't know. It it felt a little, and this is really personal. Like I, I, the pieces that I've heard of other people grieving for loved ones, I've always felt, um, have been really earnest and like, Mm -hmm. and, and went there. But for me, for a long time, I, I was just thinking, I, I don't know that this is authentic to me. Mm-hmm. And then when grandma, my grandma passed, um, uh, she and I had had a, an exchange while, while she was ill. And uh, she, she was, she just, she requested that I write music full of lights and flowers, um, which was a very <laughs> touching moment. And yeah. so it was kind of, that was the permission I needed, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so that, that, uh, yeah, that drew me, that, that made it possible for me, I think. Um, in your yeah. longer bio on your website, you, you kind of mentioned your interest in improvisation. Does improvisation come into this piece at all? Or is, or is everything completely notated written down? Um, most is written um, at the, at the climax. That's, all improvised okay Um, yeah i I give i give some indication for some of the instruments that they should focus on certain pitches but for the most part i give them uh free reign to Mm -hmm. and the and the conductor um basically i give them uh pitch cells and the dynamic level and a um uh an amount of time Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. so um and then, yeah, and then it descends, and by the time you get to the end of it, you you're back into uh, when uh, everything fades away, and you just have the cello holding the pit, uh-huh. holding a note. Um, that's 
that's when the writing starts back up right through composing i mean it's honestly for for me you know listening to it for the first time it really seemed like the trombone writing might have been improvised Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. like so so does that come into your process of composition uh yeah yeah i i um so my background uh i grew up listening to a lot of jazz um I kind of lost my mind when I heard Charles Mingus's Haitian fight song. Hmm. Um, just, uh, I was just like, I, I don't understand what the draw is and where this power is coming from. And so um, I think I was drawing on some of that when I wrote the trombone line, especially I was just, I was really, I was kind of focusing on a pentatonic sound. And um, I thought that, uh, it just needed to feel like there was an improvisational energy behind yeah. it because mm-hmm. that's that's how the services are. And so like a lot of my melodic lines will have, I think, an air of uh, of improvisation behind them because mm-hmm. I, I'll test them out. I'll play them on sax or on piano and just right. like continuously. Uh, sometimes even if I'm performing, I'll use I'll I'll kind of use that as an opportunity to try out some lines uh-huh yeah and uh and see how i could how to fit it in and stuff right you i i also <clears throat> really uh in your longer bio on your website i, I was mm-hmm. looking at that and uh it mentioned your interest in the growth of complex music from a simple idea mm-hmm. does that enter into this work at all or or this one's really personal, so yeah. So <laughs> I don't know that it, there's a simple idea, other than um, I do lace the the hymn through the throughout the piece, mm-hmm. um, and what I mean by that, so like uh, during the sermon, the first pitch of every measure is from the hymn. Okay, yeah. During the sermon. So it has um, a structural a, basis. Just a structural kind of thing that, and then from there, I would just, yeah, I would, I would uh, ornament beyond mm-hmm. that. So the, uh, the measures would line up. I would, I would, it was like a, yeah, an augmentation of the melody, mm-hmm. um, like a true augmentation of the melody. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what's the, what's the complete instrumentation for this? It's, um, let's see. All right, so uh, it's piccolo, E flat clarinet, bass clarinet, bassoon, um, trumpet in C, trombone, uh, bass trombone, uh, drum set, and then two violin, cello, viola, and double bass. Mm-hmm. And uh, who- oh, and uh, organ uh, or um, electric. That's right. Uh, keyboard, yeah. Electric yeah. Keyboard. And and who who were the uh, who were the performers that we're going to hear on the recording? Uh, this is the Metropolis Ensemble. We uh, they commissioned me to write the piece for the um, Intersect Festival uh, in New York City. Uh, they were honoring Derek Burmel and um, Billy Childs, and uh, Metropolis was playing uh, Three Rivers by Derek Burmel. So I used a similar instrumentation. Um, for that concert so that they wouldn't have to logistically it would, right, yeah. it would work out nicely. Um, so yeah, that that's, that's the impetus for the writing of it. Awesome. 
So we're going to hear the Metropolis Ensemble, and this is Prayer Service for Ernestine.
so let's talk about the other uh, new piece, relatively new piece, written last year in 2017, uh, which is called The Reaction. And this is for solo bass baritone. And the text is kind of a series of unanswered questions that starts out with uh, who, what, where, when, how, and I think most importantly, why. Um, there's a kind of anguish in the performance that you get from from the performer and relating to these questions and then the ones that follow, which kind of uh, expound on those simple questions. And I think you're tapping into a really, really powerful feeling that a lot of people are feeling right now. Mm -hmm. yeah. So can you talk about the text, where it comes from, its meaning, that kind of stuff? Yeah. So um, uh, the performer, Carl DuPont, uh, asked me to write a piece for his upcoming album. Um, and initially I was going to write a, I was, I was thinking about experimenting with uh, vocalese or something for a love song where it was just progressively the text would, would fill in to the vocalese. Mm -hmm. And then uh, uh, November 9th happened, 2016. <laughs> A uh, day that will live. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, it was lit, it, like, it was as if someone had uh, let, uh, had it detonated a concussion bomb next to my head. So I, I just couldn't fathom writing the song, it just felt, felt too, it didn't feel again, that word authentic or it, it just, it was just like, I, I, I don't know what just happened, but I can't write this piece that I was planning on writing. Yeah. Um, and so the question that, so I wrote the text and, um, uh, I don't know if you remember, there used to be a Nickelodeon show called W5. Do you, uh, I it don't remember with, that. It was uh, it was with uh, Susan Ellerby, I think was her name. But anyway, it was a journalism show, and it was supposed to teach kids all about journalism. Uh -huh. and, um, there was a famous episode of it where um, uh, it was early 90s, so uh, Magic Johnson came on the show mm -hmm. to talk about HIV and AIDS, and there was a little girl. like So it was just like, it was the kind of one of the first moments where there was like a a kid run news station where like <laughs> you, you had a uh, kind of this investigative spirit, yeah. investigative journalism spirit. Um, so I've always kind of grown up with the idea that journalism asks these questions mm -hmm. uh, and, and the ideal of journalism is that they will ask these questions regardless of who's standing in front of them and uh, their particular political leanings. Um, so, and, and the whole, the whole run up to the, to the election was essentially, a malpractice of the, of journalism, uh, where yeah. the finances of this one person being, you know, just a, a vacuum of, of attention versus, uh, actual journalistic integrity like you know it, it really went out the window um to the point where you couldn't tell the difference between cnn and fox news and mm -hmm. msnbc they all were pretty much complicit in in the rise of trump you know um so i 
that was that was initially what it was. It was anger at Trump getting elected, but um, I guess I was placing blame somewhere. Uh, and so, yeah, I I, uh, I I I essentially just sat down and wrote out my primal scream uh-huh. after the after the election. Um, and I, I, Carl uh, Carl Dupont does an amazing job with it. Like, yeah. And it, it actually, he's, I was going to ask who that was. Cause he's yeah. very good. <laughs> he's yeah, he's great. He was a, he was a classmate and friend of mine down at the university of Miami. Um, uh, we were both getting our doctoral, uh, our DMAs there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now he's a professor at, uh, UNC Charlotte. Okay. All um, right. and the album should be coming out this year. And actually the reaction is the title track of the album. Um, so yeah, it's you know it. You probably had this where like you've done something a little extreme for yourself, or mm-hmm. like maybe even a little. I won't say experimental, just like this is not what I write, mm-hmm. <laughs> and <Yeah>. then <laughs> and so you have no idea, and then you hear from the performer, and he's like, "Oh, I love it. You know, I, I can't wait to perform it. You know," and then and then finally like after a year he sends you the recording or send, he sent me the recording i was just like holy crap yeah <laughs> like okay all right so i guess yeah. i was supposed to write that you know um, yeah exactly and i mean what i guess why why the decision i mean you you initially started with this other idea um but did was it him that gave you the the uh, restriction to only write for uh, unaccompanied voice or was that your decision? No, that was my decision. So I'm, um, why, you know, why that decision? I was going to, I was trying to write it for bass and, and piano, but the piano was, uh, too restrictive. Mm-hmm. Um, I needed, I needed the performer to be able to be fluid with the, with the piece. And, um, and honestly, it, it with the the emotions I was feeling at the time, the piano was just just way too. Uh, it was like almost arcane. It was like just mm-hmm. an archaic, like just this this instrument that uh, limits limits the pitches that uh, singers can use because it's equally tempered. Right. Yeah. Just, you know, like. Just these things that, like, you know, there seemed to be a lot of no with the piano, <laughs> you know. So, uh, I mean, I've I've gotten beyond that now. But, like, with that particular piece, for sure, it was just, well, it just it, wasn't right. Yeah, it also seems like adding, I mean, I, mean I, I asked the question, but I also think it is incredibly effective that it is unaccompanied. I mean. Thank you. I think the, the you know, the piano like you say it would have kind of gotten in the way it's maybe too abstract for this uh for this type of thing and i mean because there's there's nothing else there it really it really confronts the audience i think you know and it 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 almost kind of forces them to feel these things you know there's no it's the the performance is just there it's naked and that, and I think that's what I love about it so much is that it's, it's just, 
And like you say, it gives license and agency to the singer to like go where it needs to go to, yeah. to, to have that kind of flow. So yeah, it, I really, really effective. It, yeah. um, it, it kind of, um, not in the writing, but I guess just, just in the way that it is so, so out there and naked and it, it makes the audience kind of, it, you know, feel a certain way. It kind of reminded me of, um, this piece by Earl Kim, um, the, Oh, I'm going to forget the title now. Uh, <laughs> it's the third, it's the third movement of a, of a piece and it's called Ophelia and, um, Don Upshaw has a recording of it. It is okay. called the, uh, can't believe I can't. Well, the the album is the girl with the orange lips. I can remember okay. that much. I know that I know that album. I I've, uh, I'll I'll look it up. Yeah, but it it just had that that same effect on me. Anyway, mm-hmm. so um, so we're gonna listen to it now, and the singer's name is again Carl Dupont, and this is the reaction. Who is to blame? Who do I blame for my despair? Is suffering her confusion? Who are they? Are they? Who are they? Who are they? What have we done? 
What does this mean? What have we done? Ah, where can I go? This new reality, how can I move on when they're laughing? Oh, can't we do something? Can't we do something? Do something? Can't we do something? Something. All right, and now we're going to talk about a, a slightly older piece. Um, I mean, <laughs> I guess for composers, you know, a piece that's six years old does kind of feel old, but yeah. in the grand scheme of things, it's still pretty recent. Right. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. so this is your piece for orchestra called Three Glorious Days. Um, it seems like for the majority of composers, the opportunity to write for orchestra comes so rarely. So how did this piece come about for you? Uh, so when I uh, first conceived the piece, I was a student still at um, at University of Miami. And uh, at the time, Cle the Cleveland Orchestra uh, 
was would uh, have their winter home in Miami. Um, mm, okay. And so University of Miami and Cleveland Orchestra would um, would often have these uh, student side by sides and um, um, workshops with composers and, and readings for, with composers. And so that particular year, they asked for um, uh, it was it was a rare year because they they decided that it would be a full orchestra full orchestra reading, mm-hmm. uh, and they asked that. Um, composers at UM write a piece that was uh, inspired by um, Berlioz's Symphony Fantastique. Um, and so if you listen to the piece, uh, you'll notice there's a, a 2D strike every so often. And uh-huh. that's the that's taken from the, oh, I'm going to blank, the fourth movement, I think. The, the, is the that guillotine. The... The march to the scaffold. Yeah, or, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. So, and that's the guillotine gesture right at the end, mm-hmm. um, where you and the, it's a two D two D strike, and then uh, bass pizzicatos symbolizing a head falling into a basket. Right. And I just thought that was just such a a gangster like <laughs> <laughs> a gesture. I was always I was ever since I heard first heard it, I was just like, oh my gosh, this is. This this is so gruesome, you know. Um, and so I, uh, for my piece, I decided to do some research, and uh, it turned out the year that Berlioz. Um, uh, so yeah, when he premiered Symphony Fantastique, it happened to be the year of a uh, French Revolution that was called the Three Glorious Days. Oh, uh, okay. It's a it's a brief one that was basically uh, led by journalists and politicians. Mm-hmm. Um, and it and all it really did was it changed it changed political power political power changed hands from um, the the um, the house of Louis the Fourteenth to the house of Orleans and so like it, it really just kind of didn't do much of anything mm-hmm. um, and it uh, when I wrote it 2012 we were in the middle of the Mitt Romney Obama. Um, election and so I was just kind of like this is similar without the guillotines but like all these all yeah that, that would have uh, made the election kind of messed up <laughs> right yeah but like you know they're hurling these it's so quaint now thinking about it but you know uh, the the major controversies was were would be things like Mitt Romney saying well, there's 47% that are just going to vote for Obama because he gave them health care. You know, like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and, and the, I just, the outrage about that. And then, uh, and then you know, it would just lead to the election and whoever won, it happened to be Obama. But it, even if Mitt Romney won, the, the next day, the loser would say, you know, uh, congratulations to my opponent for, for whatever. And, and. Um, I look forward to seeing, you know, it's always like, I look forward to seeing what you'll do in the next four years and I will be there to, you know, provide you with a conscience for, you know, (laughs) and Mm -hmm. it's just like so performative and so kind of like, well, not anymore. Yeah. Well now it's, yeah. Uh, but it's, I, it's funny to me, the, uh, juxtaposition of the reaction to this piece because it also shows like my growth in being able to connect, um, 
connect my feelings about maybe a political situation or the current state of society to my music. Mm-hmm. Like this is, um, it doesn't, I don't think it sounds academic, but it, my kind of reasoning around the program is fairly academic. And so, um, uh, but I, I love this piece anyway. And I still, and I think it, it's good for people to hear it just to kind of see where I was and where, where I am now. Sure. 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 Mm-hmm. Um, it was, I, I would, you know, doing a little bit of reading and I saw that it was on uh, the festival Miami concert, which it was paired with a bunch of other American works. Yes. And, um, I want. I wanted to ask you just because I I find myself struggling with this. Um, does being an American manifest mm-hmm. itself in your musical or compositional identity? The short answer would be no. I think I'm I'm just a composer. Yeah. But because of the way we have to market ourselves. Um, or we have to fight against being marketed. Yeah. So like I'm a black composer and so the, and I have a jazz background. And so the, the, um, the assumption is, is that my music's going to sound a certain way. Right. And, and, the, and the people that are making the decisions in the marketing room already have had many, well, actually, unfortunately, not many, but mm-hmm. um, but they have had examples of how to market a person like that with that kind of background. Right. So they exactly so they put you into that box. Yeah, and 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 then there's an assumption that, uh, yeah, yeah, it's just it's so like, uh, I I tend to respond that I'm an American composer, but I don't think it. I don't think there's. I don't, I'm not consciously thinking, oh, this is an American sound that I'm making. Right. Yeah. And uh, I'm, this is just the sound that I make. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. So, um, it's just it's just been an interesting question to ask a lot, you know, um, for me, because uh, for the last uh, not including this year, this has been my first year back in the States. But for the four yeah. years previous to the beginning of this year, I was living and working in China and um it just seemed like over over in China and to a certain extent in other countries, though not as much as I have seen it in China, there was this this you know real uh, value placed on being a Chinese composer and having mm-hmm. and having a sound that identified you as a Chinese composer, and that really just got me thinking. Like, well, what does that mean to be? What does it mean to be an American composer? And for yeah. some people, I know it does mean something, and they're mm-hmm. they're going after something with it. But for me, it just kind of, it it never really felt like well, that doesn't matter at all. Like yeah, you know, I, yeah. So yeah. I was just wondering because because of that, you know, they're they're pairing you next to Ives and and Ruggles yeah. and you know very big American sounds, or at least mm-hmm. or at least what we have. Uh, what we've come to place as American sounds after yeah. the fact. Yeah. But when, what's really connecting all those composers is really more the, the spirit of, um, of like tinkerers and inventors, mm. right? Like it's not so much 
you know, it's not so much the craggy sounds of of Ives or 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 um, or you know Ruggles Suntreader or you know like <laughs> those are those are big big huge pieces, but at the same time, you know, it, it could have easily been written by a European. Yeah, um, you know, but uh, I do I do think like their personal bio is what kind of marks them more as American than sure. the actual sounds. Yeah. Um, was this your first piece for orchestra? Yeah. Yeah, it was. And uh, it was actually for a time. Uh, it was actually my most performed piece, ironically. Wow. That, yeah. doesn't, that doesn't happen. It That's never incredible. Happens. <laughs> um, yeah, it was, it was read by Cleveland and then it was read by uh, Detroit. Um, and then the Frost Symphony did the official premiere. So like, uh, yeah. So three performances at that point, only one other piece had been performed like twice, you know? Mm -hmm. (laughs) So it was was strange, strange thing. And what was, I mean, what was the hardest aspect about writing it? Because I, I really only have one other orchestra piece as well. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I mean, there were some hard things, so I'm just, I'm just curious. I think the the hardest thing is, um, and I think it, I don't know, I, uh, I'm making an assumption here, but I think coming from a jazz background, you um, tend to not understand where the rhythmic complex complexity can be, and so. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, like really how important the strings are and, and mm. really understanding the dynamics of string writing to the point where you know that you can, you can um, do some subtle rhythmic things that that'll carry over. Mm-hmm. Like um, just, you know, the experience of other pieces that I would write, I would, um, I would have the, like a student reading with the student orchestra or whatever and like I would have drum set, you know, and the drum set would it, it was cute that the drum set was there, but like it wasn't making any actual effect on the right. experience of the music. It was more just uh, an ornamentation. Uh-huh. But as soon as the strings come in, it's just it washes out whatever rhythmic impact. Mm-hmm. And that's a that's a difficult thing to get over when you're used to playing and writing for mu- writing for ensembles where the drums are the rhythmic backbone. You know? Yeah. Um, so I think that was the, that was the hardest thing I've always been drawn to orchestration. So like that, that was, that was fun. It was just more making sure that the rhythms I had in mind were actually going to carry over. Uh, it's interesting that you, you just mentioned orchestration because I, I know that, you know, you had the Berlioz kind of, uh, uh, background for this piece, but, um, before I make an assumption, um, who who were who were some of the composers that you kind of grew up on that that kind of maybe gave you some some of those tricks for orchestration? Um, I guess um, number one, one A one B would be Stravinsky and Schoenberg. Mm-hmm. Um, I also love Ravel, um, and then. Um, I just I would I would listen out for kind of advice from other composers sure. about like what to do. Um, yeah, 
Why? What do you? What do you? Okay, think? I would have been wrong, but okay. <laughs> there was there was a little bit um, in the climax where, and and this could totally be me just mm-hmm. uh, reading into it because this composer was was totally my favorite composer for for a while when I was younger. But I was hearing a little bit of Shostakovich in the. Oh, in that's the interesting. Yeah. yeah so. um, I hadn't been listening. It's it's funny during that time I hadn't been listening to much Shostakovich, but like I, my music I was writing at the time would get compared to Shostakovich or Bartok a lot. So oh, it was just interesting. an interesting. Right. Uh, yeah. So you're not alone. <laughs> okay. All right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, cool. So this um, are we going to hear that uh, that Frost? Uh, what what's the ensemble called again? This is the Frost Symphony Orchestra. The Frost Symphony Orchestra. All right, so this is the Frost Symphony Orchestra and Three Glorious Days. Thank you. 
We'll just get to the the last question, the question that I ask all the composers and artists that are on the podcast, which is, how did you come to music as something that you wanted to pursue for your life? Mm. That is a long and winding road. <laughs> yeah, it, it usually is. <laughs> um, so I guess um, early in my life, uh, I would say that, I, you know, most people would 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 say like drummers would say they banged on pots and pans all mm-hmm. over the place. I was more subtle with my with my um I think uh, with my kind of musical pursuits. I um among the things I would do is I was fast I was obsessed with Michael Jackson at the time. We were talking about mid 80s. So mm-hmm. like uh the neighborhood neighborhood kids and I would gather and and we would uh, do dan- we would pretend that we were in a Michael Jackson video mm-hmm. and I would lip sync that. Uh, but then at the same time, I was also a very, very avid uh, impressionist. Like not, I wouldn't stand up in front of the classroom and say, uh, what would it sound like if John F. Kennedy <laughs> went to the car wash? I bet it would sound a little like this, right? So, uh, but there were there would be stretches in the day where nobody would be able to tell which voice was my real voice. Cause I would do like Pee Wee Herman or, right. uh, or Michael Jackson or, um, you know, Adam West. Cause the, the, the old Batman's were in yeah. syndication at the time. Uh huh. Um, and so that, I, th- I think looking back on it, I think that meant that my ear, like I was, you had the I ear always, always had a really sensitive ear. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, I was kind of lukewarm about saxophone uh, when I got it at nine. But I kind of had, it um, uh, again, my ear, I, I always had a really good tone on saxophone, even when I was a, a beginner. So I, I just, uh, it, I, I guess it wasn't until college where it really solidified. And it was just kind of like, yeah, this is what I'm doing. Uh, and part of it was... I, I went to um, the school I went to was called Birmingham Southern College, and and I entered thinking that I was it's a liberal arts college in in Alabama, and I entered thinking that I would probably be poli sci, you know, pre law or something like mm-hmm. that, and uh, I took a class called public policy process, um, and th- there's nothing wrong with that class. Uh, all the all, all the stuff that was wrong with it was that I was in the class. It was right, like eight yeah. o'clock in the morning, and we were talking about, uh, you know, flows of power between, you know, different different uh, portions of the government, what a local government can look like, the different form, the, you know. And it was just like at eight o'clock, like man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so my sophomore year, I luckily I I had uh, taken the placement exam and placed out of all my theory the first year of theory, so I could I could start second year and not really um, and not really have any um, uh, damage to my ability to graduate on time. Sure. Um, and and that's where I was introduced to Schoenberg and Stravinsky for the first time. And it's just like uh, Pierrot Lunaire, I remember 
hearing uh, Monflick from Pierrot Lunaire and just mm-hmm. <laughs> just like obsessed. And then hearing it couldn't have been the first time I heard Rite of Spring, but it was the first time I heard it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it, it was mm-hmm. just kind of mm-hmm. like, holy crap. <laughs> it's like yeah. this has been here this whole time and I'm, I'm just now <laughs> discovering it uh, to the point where I listened. I listened to it every day, all day. I had it. Um, I had one of these Iowa um, stereo systems, which mm-hmm. will allow you to set your CD, your favorite CD, as your alarm. Uh-huh, so I yeah. set for for about two weeks. I set Rite of Spring as my alarm, and I always woke up before my roommate, who's my best friend in college, a really sweet, tall guy. Um, you know, kind of really kind hearted, and mm-hmm. one day. He comes over to me. He's like, Matt, can you please not wake up to that anymore? <laughs> I feel like the devil is pulling pulling the sheets <laughs> off my bed. <laughs> so, well, which movement of the Rite of Spring were you waking up to? Was it the? It was just the beginning. Yeah, but okay. you know, uh, I wouldn't turn it off once I was awake. You know, so he would wake yeah. up to the dance of the adolescence. You know, it's mm-hmm. uh, so I guess he. <laughs> He felt like somebody was stabbing him or something, you know, like yeah. it just, it was evil in the room, you know. It's pretty uh, intense in the morning. It is. It is. Um, and so at that point, I think I realized, okay, well, I'm on the right path. I'm yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, and then after that, everything that's happens kind of confirmed that I needed to stay on the path. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's been great. Awesome. Well, before we go, can you tell people uh, where they can find uh, your music online and where they can uh, connect with you, like on social media or whatever? Yeah. So um, you can find me, you can find my music on SoundCloud uh, and that's M Taylor 1980 on uh, SoundCloud slash M Taylor 1980. I'm also on Instagram, uh, Matthew Evan Taylor. Uh, And then, uh, I have a Facebook page and all that. Uh, oh, and also my website. My website. I'm about to. I think. I think. I, every podcast I hear, somebody's saying this about their website. I'm yeah. about to re- revamp my website. <laughs> uh, but for the time being, you can you can find some music and videos there. Uh, MatthewEvanTaylor.com. Uh, yeah, and and that's that's really the. The central hub. If you if you go there, you'll be able to find all my other uh, social media stuff. Cool. Thanks so much for doing this, Matthew. Oh, this is my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening. As always, if you want to find out more about adjective new music or lexical tones, please go to our website, www.adjectivenewmusic.com. <laughs>